Welcome to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Josh Brewer. Each week on Profiles, we bring you conversations with members of our community, as well as visiting artists, scholars, and writers to hear the stories behind their work. This week, we're looking back at the last year of the show, and we've picked clips from some of our favorite episodes. Later in the hour, we hear one of our favorite interviews with comedian Hassan Minaj. Minaj grew up as an Indian American and sees comedy as an important way to talk about complex political issues. We'll also hear from historian and author Jill Lepore. Lepore is a professor of history at Harvard University and a staff writer for The New Yorker. She's the best-selling author of the book The Secret History of Wonder Woman, among others. But first, we'll hear an excerpt from a conversation with TV personality Mark Summers. Summers is best known as the host of the family game show Double Dare in the Food Network's Unwrapped. WFIU's John Bailey spoke with Summers this past March as he was preparing for his one-man show, which premiered at the Bloomington Playwrights Project. You were driven from a very, very early age to be on TV. Did you have kind of a light bulb moment when you knew this is what you had to do? I was one of the lucky few who came out of the womb and knew exactly what he wanted to do. When I was uh, about five years old, there was a show that was on all around the country called Romper Room. And my mother at WFBM-TV in Indianapolis put me on Romper Room. Whatever magic it was that I had, they liked me. The producers liked me. So every time a kid would get sick... Our phone would ring at like 6 in the morning, can you get Mark down here? So I became, you know, the, the fill-in. I was the David Brenner of The Tonight Show, except it was Romper Room in Indianapolis. And I remember walking into the studio. I, I remember the way it smelled. I remember the energy, the excitement. And there was a thing where they would – she would look at a magic mirror, and she would go romper, bumper, stomper, boo. Uh, and she would pretend – to uh, be looking at you, and then they would go to a film piece, and then they'd switch out this mirror, and she'd be standing there, and there was nothing there, but she'd be looking at the camera. And as a five-year-old kid, I went, that is the coolest thing I have ever seen in my entire life. And so I was bitten by the bug at, at about age five or six. Growing up in Indianapolis, though, in the heartland, how far away did New York and Hollywood seem to you? Um, I, I would watch the Ed Sullivan show every week and go, how do I get on? I like stand-up comics. I would watch Jack Carter and um, Jackie Vernon and, and Jackie Mason, and and I go, wow, how do you do that? So uh, two things happened. My confirmation class from the Indianapolis Hebrew Congregation took a, a trip to New York when you were in confirmation class. I was almost fourteen. I had never been to New York City before. I was just blown away by the sights, the sounds, and the smells. And they took us to a Broadway show. They took us to see Fiddler on the Roof. Well, my God, I'd never experienced anything like that in my entire life. So I found out about this magazine called Variety. It was the show business Bible. And so there was one place in Indianapolis next to the Indiana Theater that got weekly Variety in. So when I was in sixth grade, starting at sixth grade, I would take a bus for 25 cents down to downtown Indianapolis I would go into this newsstand next to the Indiana Theater and buy Variety for a quarter and read it cover to cover 
three times until next week when I would do the same thing. And I remember I would learn the terminology, um, you know, casting, legit, uh, uh, summer stock. I didn't know what these things meant. And so that's as close to show business as I could get in Indianapolis. You made your way out to L.A. Yeah. Um, my uh, brother was playing drums for Helen Reddy at the time and living in L.A. And I moved out and got a job as a page at CBS Television City where I was as close as I'd ever been. I mean, it was the Carol Burnett show. I was, I was a page on Carol Burnett, All in the Family, Price is Right, Sonny and Cher, uh, Mary Tyler Moore, where I met my wife. Um, it was like the last bit of real show business. And I was the happiest human I'd ever been in my entire life. That was your first encounter there at CBS with game show hosts. Yeah, I, I met my idol, Bob Barker, there. And so I become a page on Price is Right, and finally had enough guts to walk up to him backstage and say, hey, my name is Mark, and you know I grew up watching you. And, and the next thing I know, I become an idea man on a show that he was doing called Truth or Consequences the last year it was on the air. And once again, died and gone to heaven. I get to go to work a couple of days a week and hang out with Barker. And so I learned a lot from that man. Probably the most important thing was, if you want to be a good host, you make everybody else around you look good. And I think that's why Barker was such a big star, because the contestants were the, the, the big things, and he looked good because of it. And I learned that right away from Bob, and that's what I tried to do when I got my first show, Double Dare. In 1986, you got that opportunity. Nickelodeon launched a kids' game show, family game show, called Double Dare, mm. and you were tapped as the host. How did that happen for you? By mistake. Right place, right time. A good friend of mine, Dave Garrison, uh, who was a ventriloquist from Indianapolis, was working with me doing stuff in, in, uh, in L.A. and decided he didn't want to be a ventriloquist and try and be a, an act um, and wanted to be behind the scenes. So he called me up and said, I got a call from some network I've never heard of, Nickelodeon, uh, for an audition for a kid's game show. Why don't you go instead of me? All right. So I went. And when I got there, there were Adults playing the part of kids, and it was a game show. Well, hell, I always wanted to host a game show, never wanted to host a kid's game show, but this is first audition because when I wanted to host game shows at NBC and CBS and ABC, they kept telling me, I look too young, come back when you have gray hair and wrinkles because it was Bob Barker and Bob Eubanks and, uh, you know, uh, all the guys who were, you know, in Wink, vogue at the Wink time, Martindale. Wink Martindale, Jack Berry, all those guys. And I was a kid. And so... Here, Nickelodeon was a kid show looking for somebody who wasn't necessarily a kid, uh, but could wrangle kids. And I had background. I, at that point, had written for Truth or Consequences, but then I was a writer for a bunch of other game shows, and then I was a warm-up guy for a bunch of game shows. So I was primed and ready, and they had auditioned 1,000 people in New York and didn't like any of them. So they came to L.A. and auditioned 1,000 people in, in, uh, in L.A. I was the first guy who auditioned here. And I called my agent right after I got out, and I said, oh, man, I I, this is mine. And he goes, yeah, I got like 10 other clients going in. Good luck on that. And I got a call back, and then I got a third call back. And it finally came down to me and another guy. And the one thing I used to do when I was auditioning was I would get the name of the head of casting and the exec producer. The exec producer was Mike Klinghoffer, and I knew the show was going to start shooting in September. This was the end of August. And I called Klinghoffer at uh, Nickelodeon, New York. I said, hey, it's uh, Mark Summers. What's going on? I haven't heard from you guys. He goes, well, I, it's funny that you call because we've got it narrowed down to you and another guy, but we don't know if you're good with kids. Well, all the auditions up to this point were grown-ups 
playing the part of kids. And I said, well, I'm great with kids. I, I have two kids. And he goes, no, it's not good enough. I said, I used to do magic shows for kids. No, it's not good enough. And I said, well, why don't you take me and whoever this other guy is and put us in a studio in New York with real live kids and let the best man win? And that's what they did. They flew us both there. To this day, I don't know who that other guy is. And they kept us separated. And I did my audition and left. And then he did his audition and he left. And two days later, I get a phone call. You got the job. And I said, let me ask you a question. You auditioned 1,000 people in New York and 1,000 people in L.A. Why did I get this? And he goes, well, I'm going to tell you quite honestly, um, you guys were about equal. But at the end of his audition, he looked at the camera and said, is that it? Do you guys want me to do anything else? And I looked in the camera and said, we'll be back with more Double Dare right after this. And he said, because you threw the commercial, it was more professional, and that's why you got the job. Go figure. The game show seemed, to someone at the age that I was at the time, uh, really outre. I mean, it was just – it was out there in terms of the physical challenges, the stuff that kids were put through. It seemed like a great deal of fun and also exceptionally messy. What are some of the epic messes you recall from that show? We filled the tank. We had this tank, which initially was filled with, um, you know, like the, the the balls that kids jump into. And then we put styrofoam peanuts in there. And um, one day <laughs> we decided to fill it with 4,000 pounds of baked beans. Okay. Now, first of all, how do you even get 4,000 pounds of baked beans? We have to go to a uh, restaurant supply place and get those huge, you know, cans. And we had guys just for hours opening cans and, you know, and so you can only imagine the first day it didn't smell bad, but by the third day it smelled like a a bad school cafeteria. So now after three or four days, you have to get those baked beans out of there. We didn't know how to do it. So we literally at first had guys with shovels uh, shoveling the beans into large garbage sacks and that wasn't working. So the way we solved it was we called, you know, those guys who come with the trucks to clean septic tanks. So we call a guy, he walks into the studio with hip waders. And he goes, uh, huh, beans, huh? And we go, yeah. He goes, want me to get those out of there? We go, yeah. So he, he pulls in one of those huge, you know, sucking machines, and he wades in there and sucks the beans out. So that was one of the first times that uh, I went, okay, what are we doing here, you know? When I first learned of your longtime battle with obsessive compulsive disorder, mm-hmm. the first thing I thought was, how could he possibly stand dealing with all that food, hmm. green slime on the hair, pies in the face. How were you able to manage that? Because I finally got what I always wanted. And so it was a matter of overcoming whatever OCD was to me. Now, here's the thing. I was never a germaphobe, okay? Howie Mandel doesn't want to shake your hand. He does the fist bump and all that stuff. That wasn't me. I'll shake your hand all day long. Mine was neatness and orderliness, putting things symmetrical, and staying clean. So if I would get my hands sticky, I couldn't wait to wash my hands. Like, I would walk to school and get dust all over my shoes because of where we lived in Indianapolis, and the first thing I would do would be go to the bathroom and get those brown paper paper towels, get them wet, and wipe my shoes off, okay? So I did not like mess. So... When I auditioned for Double Dare, we did um, physical challenges and we did questions, but we didn't do the obstacle course. So the first day I walk into the studio, here's a slide and a guy is pouring whipped cream and chocolate on it. And I walked over to him. I said, excuse me, what are you doing? He said, well, this is the obstacle course. I said, what's the obstacle course? Well, after they win, they have to run eight obstacles in 60 seconds or less. And I went, 
do you really think kids are going to want to do this? Well, you know, I was absolutely wrong. Of course they did. It was We found out the kids would run the obstacle course for no prizes. They just wanted to get messy. So the first 65 episodes, I don't get a mess on me. Nothing, nothing. I, I, those kids are running, and I, I couldn't be any further away from them. And then after the first 65, Klinghoffer, the exec producer, calls me and goes, um, you got to get messy. I go, what do you mean? He goes, well, you, you, you can't walk around the course and have those kids get slopped up. And, and you're neat as a pin. It just doesn't work. So, okay. So slowly but surely, the uh, main objective of kids used to be, how messed up can I get Mark? <laughs> and when we built the Orlando set and we had something called Lake Double Dare, they all wanted to take me and just throw me into the water. Well, you know what? When you're a kid and the host is, you know, in charge and you want to let him know that you want to have a good time, you go into that water. And I defy anybody to ever look at an episode and say I was not having a good time. I was able to sell that more than life itself. But the minute the camera was off and we were done, uh, the folks at Nickelodeon would get upset because I would start to undress in front of the kids because I was covered and I didn't like that feeling. And so I would take off my sport jacket, I would take off my tie, and I would start to unbutton my shirt and they used to say, could you go do that in the dressing room? No, I just wanted to get it off me. So I was that was the greatest acting job I ever did because – and I truly was having fun. And I could never let anybody know that those substances were bothering me. But the minute the camera went off, man, get that stuff away from me. At what point did you become aware that, that maybe you were extreme? Oh, I knew I was extreme. You know, and I tell you how you know you're extreme. When, you, when you're married and, and your wife says to you, you know, really, do we have to clean the house every Sunday? And then uh, when my son Matthew was born, uh, he was the only kid who was uh, four years old. He had an ice cream cone and not get a drop on him, and I was proud of that. And then I realized that I was transferring. OCD is um, has to do with serotonin not getting from point A to point B, but it's hereditary. And it's hereditary in particular parts of the world. People who were born in, uh, especially Ashkenazi Jews, who were born in Russia, Romania, Hungary, Poland, have a high predominance of it. The entire continent of, Aus- of I'm sorry, the entire continent of uh, New Zealand uh, has a high predominance of it. Holland, huge amount of Japanese people, and so it's something that you're born with, and then you have to learn to control it. But I knew I had it bad, and, and at the time, my wife and I were having issues about my cleanliness and having everything having to be perfect in the house. Well, you know, you have two kids. Good luck with that. How safe does it feel to perform as opposed to the rest of your life? Uh, it's the only place I feel comfortable. Back when Double Dare was a gigantic hit and Dave Letterman grew up in Indianapolis and we were at the comedy store together and um, the writers on Letterman's show used to love Double Dare and I used to go and hang out there afterwards. And, and and Dave said something to me once that was exactly how I felt. The other 23 hours of the day are difficult, but that one hour that I'm out there doing that show, wow, that's the best time in the world. And in my one-man show, we refer to it as Planet TV, that I feel comfortable on Planet TV. And then when you walk off stage, it's like, oh, now i got to deal with the world, you know? So doing Double Dare, doing Couch Potatoes, doing Biggers and Summers, um, doing unwrap, doing all those things, that's, that's my favorite time of the day because I get to perform and I get to be that person that I grew up watching on TV, Bob Barker, Johnny Carson. I get to be that guy. 
But then when you walk off, you got to face the real world. That was WFIU's John Bailey speaking with TV personality Mark Summers in March of this year. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. This week on the program, we're listening back to some of our favorite episodes from the past year. We're going to take a short break, but when we come back, we'll hear a conversation with historian and New Yorker staff writer Jill Laporte. Welcome back to WFIU's Profiles. I'm Josh Brewer. This week, we're looking back at the last year of the show. We've picked clips from some of our favorite episodes. Next, we'll hear an excerpt from a conversation with historian and writer Jill Lepore. Lepore visited Bloomington earlier this year as part of the Indiana University's Patton Lecture Series. While she was in town, she sat down with WFIU's David Bryn Johnson to talk about her latest book, Joe Gould's Teeth. David started by asking her about her writing process. What does your research process look like? How do you organize all these materials, and and how do you find such interesting topics? Mm, There's sort of the same question. The finding of the topics and the doing of the research are kind of the same, usually the same work. I, I will often stumble into something while looking for something else and decide, oh, this is actually really interesting. And not because I think, oh, I want to write something about it, but because I want to find out what what happened. (laughs) Then my process is basically nuts. It's Mm -hmm. immersive. It's insane. It's unremitting. It's entire and consuming. And I I mean, I I go on what I think of as research benders, where I just, Mm -hmm. all I can do, like, I just can't stop hunting for something. And you know, the more you look and the more you talk to archivists and curators and the more people know you're working on something, the more likely something's going to kind of fall your way that you didn't even know existed before. You did a lot of interesting digging for your your most recent book, a book that sheds new light on a, a legendary pair of New Yorker articles by Joseph Mitchell and their subject, Joe Gould, uh, who was an early 20th century bohemian who purported to be writing what he called an oral history of the world, a, a massive multi-million word transcription of various everyday conversations uh, that he'd overheard. In the second 1964 article, Joe Gold's Secret, which was published more than 20 years after Mitchell's original New Yorker profile of Gold and seven years after Gold's death, Mitchell made the claim that there was no oral history, that it didn't really exist on paper beyond a handful of anecdotes. And Mitchell is a a valorized, venerated writer who's strongly associated with the history of The New Yorker, a magazine for which you now write. What made you think that there was more to the story than what's indicated in Joe Gould's secret? The two essays are bound together in a book that was published in 1965 and is available in paperback. And I'd read it years ago and adored it. Mm -hmm. And I I was going to teach a class in biography at Harvard, and I'd never taught it before. And it was for sophomores. It was really a research seminar, and they had to write a biographical essay. They'd do in their own research paper. So I wanted to assign a couple of examples of biography, but I couldn't assign like a big book. So I thought, oh, I'll assign those Joe Gould essays by Joseph Mitchell because they illustrate so much about the biographical art because it's a recantation. Because the first profile that Mitchell wrote of Joseph Gould in 1942 said one thing. And then in 1964, when he writes Joe Gould's Secret, he says it was wrong. And here's kind of what happened. So I just thought it would be great in undergraduate class discussion. Also, I make a big prayer of assigning things that are beautifully written because I think students just kind of like they lap that in. 
So I was getting ready for class, and I reread. I, I had irresponsibly put it on the syllabus without rereading, and I had read it. I don't know, you know, years yeah, and years, decades yeah, before. Yeah. And I reread it, and I was, you know, reminded again of why I had assigned it as so beautiful. But I had forgotten that a lot of the story had to do with Harvard. That Gould said he had graduated from Harvard in 1911, and that he supposedly carried this will around in his uh, coat pocket, in which he said that although the oral history of couldn't be published during his lifetime, that at his death he had willed it two thirds of it to go to Harvard and a third to go to the Smithsonian. And I was reading this, and then I read the, you know, reading the rest, and it actually just sounded to me a little bit fishier than I ever remember the story sounding. And it raised a lot of evidentiary questions for me. Was the will also just an imaginary piece of paper, or had people seen that will? And if there was such a will, then wherever Mitchell, wherever Gould died, you know, he died in a mental hospital, but it would have been probated. So shouldn't I look for a probate inventory? Well, for that matter, my students are going to ask because, you know, there's Harvard students and they're, they're going to sort of identify with the locality of this. And the, the Harvard library is like, like 10 paces from where, the classroom where I was teaching. The they're going to say, well, maybe it's there. Like maybe maybe it did exist and maybe it's at the Harvard library. It's got like miscatalogued or something. It's lost in the library. And there's a kind of um, deliciousness to the curiosity, in fact, that, that Mitchell is playing with. So I went to the library, uh, and the first thing I did was I just went to the Harvard, the college archives where we keep mm-hmm. records of students, and I pulled out Joe Gould's student records. And a student record file from the 19-teens is usually like a file folder with a piece of paper in it that's like the transcript. And then maybe there's like a, a note from the dean about, you know, he should be able to get credit for this other course. or You know, it's maybe two pieces of paper. Joe Gould's academic record folder is probably four inches thick, and it's <laughs> oh crammed, gosh. crammed, yeah. crammed with these sheets of paper with Joe Gould's, you know, I came to recognize this as his handwriting, handwriting, all the, like, the guy could not stop writing. So it's just this massive, massive record of his undergraduate years, and I, you know, scanned it kind of quickly, and I began taking photographs, and then brought it to class the next day, photocopies of all this, and we just kind of divided into groups and tried to puzzle it out. And it turns out, just in that one file folder... There's a whole lot that contradicts anything that anybody had ever said or reported about Joe Gould. Most of all, things that Joe Gould himself said, but including things that anybody else had ever written about him. And I don't know. I just kind of got bitten with curiosity by that because Gould's project is so similar to my own commitments as a historian. Like he was trying to correct the asymmetry of the historical record. You know, he he wanted to write down what people say so that ordinary people's lives could be preserved so that historians could write about ordinary people. Like that is when he he talks very beautifully about why ordinary lives matter. Yeah. He seems kind of like a precursor of history from the ground up. Yeah, absolutely. He's very much a kind of like Jacob Reese meets Alan Lomax, you know, kind of collect or John Lomax kind of collect folk tales and folk music and take photographs of ordinary. Like, it's a kind of documentary populism. It's a little bit uh, before the kind of 1930s, maybe, say, mm-hmm. the um, the WPA work. Right, He'd right. been doing it much earlier. Right, yeah, yeah. And you say, I think you say in your book, uh, you can possibly attribute the term oral history to him, right? The- yeah, you can. I, in, in in fact, the, the, the first oral history organization is the Oral History Research Center at Columbia. It's founded in 1948 by the historian Alan Nevins. And his, st- I actually went and talked to them, and I read through Nevins' paper. They all admit that it's Gould who comes up with the term oral history. And it starts this whole movement ultimately. Yeah, which is an interesting and kind of uh, positive aspect of the Joe Gould story. But also I wanted to ask you about how in in Mitchell's profiles, uh, he's depicted first in the 1942 New Yorker article, I think, as 
an eccentric, perhaps even kind of charming, interesting Greenwich Village bohemian. Uh, and in the later 1964 piece, more as kind of a sad case or a victim of his own folly or delusions. Uh, but in your book, Joe Gold's Teeth, we get a different and I think sometimes disturbing sense of who Gold was. Uh, what did you find that wasn't there in Mitchell's prior portraits? Well, Mitchell says that Gould was a hero to him and he wanted readers to think of him that way, that it was a heroic thing, even in his delusion, to imagine that he had created something beautiful and that Mitchell identified with that. That was in a sort of deep poetic way that the best of who we are is to imagine that we create beauty in the world Mm -hmm. and that we make art of lasting importance or do work of great importance. And Mitchell didn't think that was delusional in that sort of clinical way. He wanted to think about how how lovely that was. Mm. And so the the reason that people love that Joe Gould secret story and the reason I love it too and, and is is a kind of parable about art. And what was hard for me once I started digging around and even that first day reading Gould's actual letters, he's certainly not a hero to me, someone I really worried about from the very start. Like the letters, they're they're really creepy. And concerning, and so you were you really really worry about him. And it turned out, you know, it was immediately clear he never graduated. He didn't graduate in nineteen eleven. He was kicked out because he was he had a breakdown. He was a, he was extremely unhappy and ill. And I I just I was really puzzled by that. Like was that so unseeable by Mitchell, who was so smart and such a keen observer, and. So then it seemed to be a double secret. He couldn't have not seen that Gould was mentally ill, that it wasn't really beautiful. I mean, it must have seemed to him often to have been ugly. So then the second profile seemed to me just as much a kind of papering over of Gould as the first one. And I I, I didn't want to kind of be fact-checking Joseph Mitchell. That wasn't my point. I was really only interested in Gould. In fact, the project that he purported to be doing could really only be done by someone who was pretty much mentally ill. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, so yeah, yeah. so I began I began systems. entertaining the possibility, just purely for the sake of the exercise, that the oral history might exist. Because if everything that was known about him was wrong, then among the things that's known about him is that he never wrote this right. incredibly important documentary history of Harlem and Greenwich Village. And... So I thought, well, now I really actually have to look because what if it does exist? Like I, I that was my my first instinct was to try to find it, and I I went to great lengths there on the way to for looking for it. I had to get to know Gould really well, and the, it was extremely unpleasant getting to know Gould really well because I mean this is why people tend to write biographies of people they deeply admire and love. He's a person in great pain and misery, and he's. He's sort of a hateful character, too. And he became clear to me that he was also a violent person. And there would be these sort of moments when I could see how other people saw him, and I would be relieved to see they saw him the same way. After the first profile came out in 1943, Gould became extremely famous. And people read read that book all the time. And a couple of Harvard students, like student reporters for the Harvard student newspaper, which is called The Crimson, went to New York to interview him. And they found him in a bar. And they write this scathing article about him. And they say, you know, inevitably Joe Gould will appear in a Reader's Digest story that will be titled Joe Gould, the the most lovable man you've never met. And and then the writers say, Joe Gould is not a lovable old man. I mean, he was a scary, violent drunk and yeah. and a kind of madman. And 
so it would be sort of a relief to see that other, <laughs> other people <laughs> saw him that way. But most of my time I spent reading his letters. That was WFIU's David Brin Johnson speaking with writer and historian Jill Lepore. You're listening to a special Best Of edition of Profiles on WFIU. We'll be back after this short break. Welcome back to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Josh Brewer. This week, we're listening to a few of our favorite conversations from the past year. In the final part of the hour, we'll hear a conversation with comedian and Daily Show correspondent Hassan Minaj. Janae Cummings spoke with Minaj prior to his one-man show at the Busker Chumley Theater in September. You're a first-generation American. Your parents immigrated from India, um, which has more than a billion people. And yeah, they immigrated. Almost 2 yeah, okay. And they immigrated to Davis, California, which maybe has sixty-five thousand people. Yeah, it's up to like eighty now. Oh, but yeah. It, look at it grow. Yeah. But at the time, at the time, I think it was like fifty when my dad immigrated in nineteen eighty-two. It was like fifty thousand people. How did he get there? Why Davis? Um. So what's interesting is is that my dad's older sister had immigrated in the, like, late 70s. And she had gotten married, and uh, my aunt and her husband ended up sponsoring my dad to come here to the States. My dad had just finished his Ph.D. in chemical engineering, mm-hmm. and he was he he was teaching as a professor in India, and then he got that call from his um, sister my aunt and she was like you should you should come and he was like okay I'll do it and just on a whim he just went and he did it and he moved here so Davis is I mean a pretty small city in comparison to Aligarh really you know a lot of places in the country and it's maybe 70% white with I assume probably a pretty low Muslim population what was it like there and for you as an Indian and as a Muslim? And when did you realize maybe you were different from the other kids? Yeah. I mean, when I was growing up, it was the percentage there, you know, since since we moved there, there's been because of the university, there's been a lot more influx of sort of diversity mm-hmm. um, through, you know, pr- professors and families and then also like technology and jobs. Companies like HP and stuff like that are now based in, in, in Intel. They have like offices now in Folsom and Sacramento and nearby areas. So now the population is, is more diverse. It's still not, you know, super, super diverse, but it's, it's a lot more than when I was growing up. And yeah, like I remember – the first time I kind of like realized I was different was when um, I was in kindergarten and I felt my first uh, love was this girl named Janice Mallow. And I went up to her in the playground and I was like, Janice, I love you. And she was like, you're the color of poop. Um, and that was like my first memory with a girl, which is pretty wild. Like that's your that's your introduction to love and uh, racism. That'll scar you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's crazy because you're just like, what? No. Like you're looking down at your skin. You're like, oh, my God, it's not rubbing off. No. Yeah. You know, you're just like, oh, what happened? Um, it, it's very it's very freaky as a, as a, as a child. Um, but then also, you know, like kids are very blunt. Um, they'll just be like, yeah, that, that's what you look like. But that was sort of like the first 
memory where I was like, oh, yeah, like this is a uh, a fair and lovely world and I'm going to have to navigate accordingly. Did your parents ever have anything to say about that? I never told them. I just – I would not tell them. Um, but there was one time I remember specifically in high school where it was public, where both me and my dad had to reckon with the realities of like living with the American dream. Mm-hmm. And it was after 9-11. So I was a sophomore – when 9-11 happened. Um, I'm at home and my, my dad had this rule where it's like we would all have to like eat dinner together. Like that was like one of his rules. And I, and I actually like really respect him for that. Um, so we're all sitting around the dinner table and this is during landlines. They didn't have a cell phone at the time, even though kids did. And I, there used to be this thing when, whenever a school friend would call the house, I would always make sure I rushed to the phone to pick it up before my parents because one time a girl called the house and um, <laughs> my dad picked up the phone before me. And this girl, Jess, called and she was like, oh, hey, is Hassan there? And my dad's like, who is this? He's like, Jessica. And he's like, oh, okay. Why are you calling? (laughs) She's like, oh, I have a question for Algebra 2 Trig. So I was wondering if Hassan was there. And my dad was like, why don't you ask me and then I'll ask Hassan. (laughs) And I was like, oh, like I'm not going to let that ever happen again. So whenever the phone would ring in the evening, I would just sprint in my socks. We had tile. Like sometimes I would eat it. Like I would sprint that. I would try to like push off of my socks on the tile so hard to sprint to the phone to get to it just in case it was a girl, right? <laughs> I rush. I sprint to the, the, the phone and I almost like I almost face plant on the table. But I like I somehow like stumble up and I grab the phone. My dad is super su- suspicious. So he's like he sees me sprint to the phone. So he's like I know a girl. he's probably talking to a girl. So he gets up to checkmate me and he grabs the other phone and uh he's like hello um and there's these guys on the other end of the phone and you can hear them they've sort of like distorted their voice and they're like hey hey where's osama and my dad's like what what yeah where's osama my dad's like i i don't i don't understand what you're saying you know he has an accent he's just he's not following what's going on and i can hear like a group of guys like eight or nine dudes that are on the phone just, like, laughing. And then they're talking through this, like, voice changer thing. I'm telling... Camel jockey, tell me right now. Where is Osama? And I'm holding the phone, and I feel, like, embarrassed. And I feel, like, ashamed. And I feel, um... kind of scared, you know? And then my dad's like, I don't know what you're talking about. And he hangs up. And I remember, like, hanging up and really feeling embarrassed, like that I have a that I am brown, that I am Muslim, that I have a dad that doesn't speak the language well, that um, I basically just live a life where I'm open to attacks like that. Nobody has my back, and I felt embarrassed. I wish I, I could be anybody but myself. Then I felt humiliated because at the same time I'm also I also grew up like in an Indian household. And I basically let eight or nine dudes just roast my dad, who pretty much sacrificed everything for me to have a better life. Just let them verbally assault him and call him names and laugh at him. So I was embarrassed for being a coward. We sit back down and um, we're eating dinner and he doesn't say anything about it. I don't say anything about it. And then we hear a thud outside. And we run outside and uh, there's shattered glass all over the driveway. And two of our cars were parked outside, and they had shattered all the windows to our car. 
and uh, my backpack was in one of the cars. So I, I run out, and my dad runs out, and now I'm, like, really pissed. And I reach in to grab my backpack to see if they stole anything out of my backpack. And I didn't have anything. Fortunately, they didn't steal anything. But as I reached out of the car, I cut my arm open uh-huh. on the broken glass. And I remember just being so angry. And I look at my dad, and my dad's just being super calm. And he's grab- he grabbed like a, a jaru. A jaru means like a, a sweep. It's like he's like sweeping up the glass. And I'm like, I'm really upset. And I'm like, Dad, why, why aren't you upset? Like, this is, this is BS. This is like, like they, they, were they outside? Like, what, what's going on? And my dad said something in Urdu that's pretty powerful. And he goes, uh, Which means uh, this is the price we pay for living here. And when I looked into his eyes, he, he didn't have like regret on his face. It was very like matter of fact. You know, this is sort of the cost we pay for the American dream. Um, and uh, I had a lot of anger during that time, to believe it or not. Like, I, I, didn't, I didn't just think of it calmly or pragmatically the way he did. But that's where I realized that we sort of look at things in two very different lenses. Because I actually, in a weird way, I felt like I didn't deserve that. And my dad is like, well, this comes with the territory for us being here. So I think anyone who's a first-generation American or has friends who are, they know how strict parents can be with their kids. I mean, you, you're talking about it a bit here with your dad saying, you know, minimize risk and don't do certain things. And I think that really comes to bear, particularly in high school. How did your parents deal with all of those, all of our typical American traditions like prom and football games and all that kind of stuff? Yeah. So – um, my dad was the eldest son from his family. I was like his eldest son and only son. So his rules like growing up were like super simple. It's like um, no fun, no friends, no girlfriends. You can have fun in med school. Like that was his MO. Like if he yeah. could get that tattooed on me, he would. He probably would have. Um, but he probably wouldn't have because tattoos are very impractical. But <laughs> that was really his MO. And it, it's such a lie too. Like oh, because it, it, it never gets popping in med school. Like you, you, I've oh, never no. seen guys in residency being like, oh, my God, life is so amazing right now. But even then, I remember like going in for like a, a, a checkup with my dentist and my dad was like, look, if you don't do medicine, you could always do dentistry. And my and my my dentist, Dr. Gary Baroni, I owe you this. This is why I'm a comedian. I remember him like sitting with me. I'm like 19 or 20 and I just started comedy and he was on the tail end of his career. He's like, look, kid, it's like, do what you want to do. Like. Yeah, like I lived a great life. Things are great. But he's like, you don't want to be staring in people's mouths for the rest of your life unless you really <laughs> want to do it. Trust me. And then my dad was I, I, my dad was in the room with me. And I'm like, see, dad, see, see what Gary, see what Dr. Brony is telling me right now. And my dad was like, Gary, what are your hours? And he's like, well, I work three days a week. He's like, see, Hassan, see, he works three days a week. <laughs> he works three days a week. And he makes a great living. And I was like, got it. Touche, dad. Touche. Um, but yeah, so it was a big struggle to like even go to things like matinee movies on weekends because he would just be like, why are you going? What's the point? It, he really was about bottom line. I sacrificed everything to be here. I'm away from all my brothers and sisters. I'm here now. You're my only son. You really are like a first round draft pick. Be very aware of the privilege that you have and your cousins like Sahil and everybody else who's back back in India, who has to compete and study in a country of 1.7 billion people, 
you have this tremendous opportunity. Do not mess it up. Like, be grateful and add something to this country. And I respect that. Um, but it really simple things like going to the movies or going to school dances or having a girlfriend was like a real problem. So I think most anyone who doesn't know you from The Daily Show may know your story about high school prom. Um, you Correct. talked about it on the Moth Radio Hour. You talked about it on yeah. NPR's All Things Considered. Can you take us maybe briefly through that story? Sure, yeah. So when I was a senior, there was this girl who had transferred uh, to our school from Nebraska. Her name was Bethany Reed, and we were in AP Calc together. And she sat behind me, and, you know, we were in Calc together, and we really hit it off. And um, we would talk to each other really late at night on AIM. I don't know if it oh, yeah. AOL Instant Messenger, which is a lot. I think people use Gmail now and stuff like that. Um, WhatsApp or whatever, but AIM was really big. No, that was um, everything. It, it's, it was everything, and you would stay up late at, late at night, and you would chat. And the thing is, is that our internet was connected to the phone, so it would we would talk during hours where you know phone calls wouldn't be coming in, or my parents wouldn't be on the phone. So we would talk like till the wee hours of the night, like AIMing back and forth. And she knew nothing about like sort of the Davis High social hierarchy, so she didn't know about the windows getting smashed in or the. The shoes getting peed in or stuff getting stolen from me or getting beat up or being called a camel jockey or a dune coon or the, all the – she didn't know about this stuff. She just thought I was like funny and, and, and sort of like charming and stuff like that and she really liked – my AIM game was really tight. <laughs> so we hit it off and she starts inviting me over to her house to study. I go over to her house and eventually like she's like, hey, we should go over to your house. So I invite her to my house and this was like a big deal. She was one of the first school friends that I invited over. And it was a big deal to me because that's not something you normally do. You didn't, I didn't want to – I was very insecure and I didn't want to open myself up to sort of ridicule from sure. uh, people at school. Uh, but I just felt like she was different. And um, long story short, our teacher, uh, Calc teacher Mr. G, wanted us to live well-rounded lives outside of school. So one day during spring semester, he was like, hey, um, I am making it mandatory for everyone to go to prom. And I was like, no way. There's no way this is happening. And then he pulls down the whiteboard, and it was a bracket with everybody's name on it. It was basically like March Madness for nerds. He's like, no, everybody is going to prom. And as the weeks went by, everybody got dates. And then a few days before prom, the last two names on the board were Hassan Minaj and Bethany Reed. Class goes nuts. And I'm so nervous because I'm like, there's no way. I could, I, I'm not going to be able to go to this dance. Bethany knows this too. We had taught, like, you know, she knew my situation at home. Bell rings, we're walking outside, and she comes up to me and she asks me. She was like, hey, listen, you know, ever since my family moved from Nebraska, I was wondering, um, will you go to prom with me? And I was like, oh, my God, yeah, of course. And uh, night of prom rolls around. I sneak out of my house. I bike over to her place, and I, I ring the doorbell. And her, her mom answers the door, and I look over her shoulder, and I see this guy um, – Jeff Burke putting a corsage on Bethany's wrist. And, you know, Bethany's mom is like, oh, my God, honey, did, did Bethany not tell you? Uh, what do you mean? And she's like, oh, you know, we love you. We think you're great. But, you know, uh, we have a lot of family back home in Nebraska. And, you know, we're going to be taking a lot of photos tonight. Um, so we don't think it'd be a good fit. And, you know, do you need, do you need a ride home? You know, Mr. Reed can give you a ride home. And, uh, that's sort of the crux of the the show. This mm -hmm. it, it's this love story of uh, my love story with America, the American dream, and my first love in America, Bethany, 
and um, the price of the American dream. And it follows my story and her story and how, you know, things shape. And we sort of explore uh, race and class and um, and the American dream in the show. So after, you know, you get out of high school, you get to college, you go to UC Davis, then you get into stand-up comedy. How did that happen? Well, so I... I got into comedy because in high school, there was one thing that my dad actually did let me do, and it was speech and debate. And I really liked speech and debate because I really love history, and I really loved um, specifically, like, I really, I, I, I really loved the way, like, the founding fathers founded our country and the debates about how, you know, I really loved all that stuff. And speech and debate was a great way to take any argument and you'd have to argue both sides whether you're for or against it and I really loved that it was really awesome um, and I loved doing it through you know through speech and then in college like really high speed internet was popular and so uh, I didn't have cable growing up so I didn't really know what stand up comedy was and then a buddy of mine had downloaded all the stand up comedy and he's like hey do you want to watch something i'm like no like <laughs> i remember stand up comedy was the stuff that they would do on seinfeld before seinfeld yeah. started the episode remember like jerry would be standing in front of like the brick background he's like what's the deal with laundry and i'm like this is the worst part of the show yeah, like yeah, get to the show he's like laundry's crazy and i'm like no this is so dumb i was like that's what stand up is but then he had downloaded chris rock's never scared and i watched that and i was like whoa this is crazy he's talking about the war in iraq he's talking about the bush administration he's talking about like his relationship with his wife his kids like really really like raw real stuff and i was watching it and it clicked in that moment i was like oh my god this is funny speech and debate stand up comedy is just presenting an argument in a funny way and it just sort of clicked for me and like it was just this lightning bolt moment where I was like, I got to do this. I have to do this. And that's when I started to like go deeper into like your rocks, your Lenny Bruce's, your uh, Richard Pryor's, Bill Hicks, like got really got into sort of that stuff. And I was like, oh man, like these guys are, they're the great sort of um, philosophers on like modern human existence. Um, They just do it in a funny way. And then that's when I also sort of got into like political satire. So, you know, John Stewart, Stephen Colbert, stuff like that. I think some of the most insightful commentary on politics, race relations, civil rights, um, it comes from our humorists, our comics, you know, you being one of them. And we were talking about the take a second ago. Um, why do you think comedy has become so powerful as social commentary? I think it's because the comedian doesn't have to toe any lines. We're not a representative of a state, a government body, a company, or an organization. We're basically serving as these court jesters that are on the sidelines of life saying, hey, we're just – we're observing the game and this is what we see. And there's, there's a lot of power in that, in that honesty. Um, and I've, I've heard it from people after like our field pieces or our interviews – the politicians that I've talked to, they're like, man, the things you say, the things you say, man, we wish we could say stuff like that. And I'm like, oh, you mean being honest? I think you should be that way. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I think that's why I wish, I wish that the people that we are poking fun at 
the governments and institutions and politicians that we're ridiculing um, carried themselves with that same code. That was Janae Cummings speaking with Hassan Minaj in September of this year. You've been listening to a special Best Of episode of Profiles on WFIU. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. Josh Brewer is the producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles.